Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. Today, we're talking with Padraig Kenny about his new book, Dance in Chains, Political... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. Today, we're talking with Padraig Kenny about his new book, Dance in Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World. I've known Podrick for a very long time, and it's always a great pleasure for me to receive a new book by Podrick. He's had many, and he's a very interesting fellow, does extraordinarily interesting work. Um, Many people will talk about international history. Podrick actually does it. (laughs) I think I can say he does actual international history. So Podrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you, Marshall. Absolutely. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I uh, used to identify myself as a Polish historian, but now I think of myself more as a global historian, which is pretty enjoyable getting to think about the entire world and and how to write about it. Um, But indeed, I started out in the world of uh, studying communism and the communist world, uh, first the Soviet Union and then Poland, where I've spent many years of my life. Tell us why you wrote Dance in Chains. Well, you know, I think I have to go back to a uh, an encounter I had in a small church outside of Warsaw in 1996, where there was a um, a conference of former dissidents from around the communist world, uh, or the former communist world, uh, including the former Soviet Union and all over the Soviet bloc, and. I was there because I was interested in dissidents. I was beginning to write a book about um, dissident movements in the 1980s. And I was struck at this conference. There was a little um, um, program full of their short bios. And almost every one of them identified themselves not in terms of the amazing stuff they'd done, which is what turned my crank. You know, they didn't say in their biogram, I edited an underground journal, or I am a poet, or um, I organized strikes in my factory. Instead, nearly every single one said, uh, I was in prison for seven years, or for nine years, or, you know, in the gulag, or whatever. And of course, that's important, but it struck me. Now, why are these people identifying themselves in in terms of what has been done to them, in term, instead of the things that they have done. There's something going on here that I don't get. Um, they're different from me, that's for sure. Um, and that's always been important for me, I think, as a historian, that I study people who are not like me and in some way that maybe I either admire or just don't fathom. Um, and so I do history in order to understand such people. And this was one of those moments. I don't understand what these people are saying and how they're presenting themselves. Um, and that, I mean, I was still very much involved in, in studying dissidents. Um, uh, but that was, that was sort of the beginning. Uh, and then as I was, uh, working on, uh, the study of dissidents, I interviewed close to 300 of them all over uh, Eastern Europe. And from time to time, I would talk to one who had uh, been a prisoner. Actually, I guess most of them had been prisoners, at least for, you know, 48 hours being detained and some of them for years. And there again, I'd be interviewing someone and thinking the whole time, wow, how do you do that? (laughs) Right? I mean, what, what is that like to say, yes, I am doing a thing which is going to send me to prison and therefore I'm going to keep on doing it. I mean, I'm sorry, that's so far outside of my frame of reference that I I needed to try to understand it. 
So yeah, that is pretty remarkable that somebody would do that. And it is outside my frame of reference as well. And that's part of what makes your book extraordinarily interesting. So one of the things I liked about your book was you say right at the beginning that it's not really about taking sides. You're interested in the experience of the political prisoners. I imagine that must have been a kind of tough call to make because I guess in some cases it's I pardon me for saying this, but it's pretty obvious who was right and who was wrong. How'd you come to that stance? Uh, you know, uh, I think I was kind of jolted into it more sort of generally uh, when I was doing those interviews with dissidents and I called one of them up to arrange an interview and they sometimes tend to be kind of suspicious people and who are you calling me up out of the blue? And so he said, so, you know, uh, who else are you talking to? And I listed some names and things like that and he said, oh, I get it. You're only talking to the people you agree with. And I thought, ooh, harsh. Um, but then I thought, okay, yeah, I, I see his point. I mean, in this case, he was a um, he was from the kind of uh, maybe conservative wing of a, of a pacifist movement I was interested in. Um, and that kind of forced me into thinking, all right, I need to talk to people I don't agree with. And then when I moved into the political prison world, I'd already – recognize that sometimes uh, political prisoners are difficult people, very often actually, um, that you can go to prison for ideas that we all like and you can go, you know, like nobody, I mean, basically nobody doesn't like Nelson Mandela, right? Or Václav Havel. I mean, you can, you know, have quibbles or something like that, but we all like them. But there are plenty of people uh, in Poland, which I uh, know the best or many other places who go to prison um, and their political ideas are, are not the greatest. And so if I started trying to parse that, you know, that was just going to lead nowhere. So I had to adopt a kind of a position of, of neutrality. But, you know, beyond that, I decided that I really was interested in what they do in prison. And so how you get to prison is not necessarily related to that. You know, you can you can be looking at someone in prison and saying and and say, okay, I need to understand how they got there in order to understand what they're doing, but that's not a given. Um, so I found that if I sort of put kind of this frame around and say, tell me what is going on, I'm saying this to the documents, not the people, uh, because I decided not to do interviews. Um, but, you know, tell me about what they do once the, the doors slam shut behind them. Yeah, I imagine it must have been difficult in some ways to make this decision, because in some cases, these people were not to put too fine a point on it, terrorists. And in, in other cases, sometimes the same cases, uh, the regimes that had imprisoned them were uh, horribly authoritarian or worse. So uh, I, I can I admire your ability to sort of step back a little bit from from these things in order to understand their common experiences. Let's talk a little bit about the origins of, this is another thing I really liked about the book, modern political imprisonment, because you know I'm a medievalist and early modernist and you know the Tower of London and all that. So, <laughs> um, so, but modern is different. You're quite right. So tell us about the origin of modern political imprisonment. Okay. So when I uh, got into this project, my first, uh, when an early thought was, wow, this is great. Uh, I found a topic that no one has worked on, and yet it's arguably important. It's not obscure, and I have this field to myself. Uh, and soon after I got into it, I realized why no one had done it, because it's enormously difficult to decide who is a political prisoner and what that is. Um, and if you start throwing into the basket everyone who has ever been confined uh, for something relating to politics, it just becomes uh, enormous. I mean, you know, you can start by saying, well, okay, you mentioned the Tower of London. Great. Okay. But wasn't <laughs> Jesus Christ a political prisoner? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Let's just get, let's just get right to the, to the <laughs> core, right? Jesus was a political prisoner. And so there we are. Um, and so one of the first things I had to do was think about, so what is it that makes a political prisoner? And how can I, uh, you know, limit this in a, in, a, in a plausible and compelling way? And so I started, you know, 
uh, you know, my specialty is the period after World War II, or let's say it had been. So I had to start going back further and thinking about in what way are these political prisoners or not. And in the end, what I came to realize is that there is a fundamental break, which uh, I argue happens uh, in the middle of the 19th century, and really specifically in the 1860s, in which at a point, this is a point at which we see modern political prisoners. Now, what is the difference? Before the 1860s, for the most part, people who go to prison for reasons related to politics, there are two things about them. First, that most of the time, they are not prisoners of the state so much as they are the king's prisoners or something like that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a personal relationship. You know, I'm going to lock up uh, that Duke because he's against me and, you know, he's just going to uh, rot in jail because I'm punishing him. And again, you know, of course, there are, are exceptions uh, to that, but that's more likely to be the case because we don't have a state institution called the prison until, uh, in most places, until the 19th and in some places not until the 20th century. And then the second thing, which is even more important, is that people who are in prison for their political beliefs before the 1860s, for the most part, say, uh, uh, protest their imprisonment but their goal is to get out of prison. Um, this is a terrible thing that I've been uh, imprisoned and I need to get out. Um, and the conditions are terrible. Uh, let me out of here. From the 1860s onward, you have uh, more and more a, a new kind of prisoner says, huh, so you've put me in prison. I am so going to use this for my politics. I'm going to take the position you've put me in, and I'm going to uh, use that to enhance my politics, to um, win over more people to my side, to uh, uh, amplify my plight, you know, what have you. Um, and it's not even a given that I really want to get out because now that I'm in prison, I have you over a barrel. Uh, now, since I mentioned uh, Jesus Christ, you could say, you could look at the Gospels and say, yeah, that's actually kind of what he was doing. Uh, so, uh, I mean, yeah, you could rewrite the, the Gospels as sort of a, a narrative of the modern political prisoner. And indeed, political prisoners often read the Gospels to sort of think about, you know, what they're, what they're doing. Um, so it's not as if, you know, 1860 something comes along and suddenly you have this new world. Whenever you say that something is modern, you can always find predecessors, and you could certainly argue that he's one of them. Um, but for the most part, this is something that emerges in modern states. And it emerges at about the same time as the discourse and practice of modern civil disobedience. Can you relate those two things? I know you mentioned Gandhi, so there's some other people involved here as well. Right. Go ahead. Uh, so absolutely. You know, there are several ingredients that I, that I think you need. And I've mentioned one, which is modern prisons or prisons that are state institutions. I should put it that way. And um, uh, state police forces uh, and state investigative units are also important. But on the other side, somebody who goes in as an individual uh, who is politically active, you know, the, you know, the regicide uh, or, you know, conniving Duke, um, they don't represent a movement or if it's a movement, it's, you know, really a, a group of people, a cabal or something like that. Um, but having Modern civil disobedience, which means two things, one, uh, organized and semi-stable, perhaps, uh, movements that have names and, um, you know, allegiance and so on. And secondly, that those come along with uh, independent movement-allied um, media, you know, so in the 19th century, you know, a little bit in the in the 18th century, but really in the 19th century, we see that not only uh, regimes or groups of intellectuals, but uh, independent movements can have their press, which can uh, draw attention to the repression 
of people who have been put in prison. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me the press also plays a very fundamental role here. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And if you look at uh, the Fenians in Ireland or Gandhi in South Africa, they both, uh, they, they almost don't exist without the press that they have. The Fenians were incredibly uh, vigorous uh, in their development of, a, of an independent press and Gandhi even more so. He would come out of prison and immediately write up, uh, or even from prison, write up reports about what he was experiencing and what it meant and offer advice to his fellow satyagrahis about how to behave in prison. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So then, to put you on the spot a little bit, sure. who were the very first modern, as opposed to pre-modern, political prisoners? Uh, there are two figures uh, who come up in the book that I would say are, are vie for for being first. Um, one is Jeremiah O'Donovan Rasa, who uh, one of the leaders of the Fenians, um, and over the course of a few years, when he's in prison in the eighteen sixties. Uh, in British prisons, uh, English prisons, I should say, uh, kind of works out how he wants to behave in prison. Uh, for example, he debates with his uh, fellow Fenian prisoners um, whether it's appropriate to do work in prison, you know, clean the cell, or should you make the guards do it, right? On the one hand, you should be defiant, or on the other hand, you should show yourself to be a model prisoner and therefore subvert their understanding of what uh, Irish rabble-rousers are all about. Um, and he finally resolves this in a moment that I just see as kind of symbolic of the uh, emerging modern political prisoner when he's in, I think it's Chatham prison in 1868. And he'd been working in the previous prison, whichever one that was, Pentonville perhaps. Uh, and now he's in Chatham and he's ordered with all the other prisoners to break stones in the yard. He's given a hammer to chop up, to bang on stones. You know, Self-evidently useless work, a way of just sort of <laughs> making them, uh, you know, suffer. And according to his own account, you know, we don't have other accounts of this, but he takes his hammer and he throws it over the prison wall saying, no, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do that. And of course he's thrown into solitary bread and water, all that kind of thing. But he has now demonstrated, no, I'm not going to do this. Try and make me. Uh, and I, I prefer to suffer. Um, at about the same time, slightly earlier, the other person who I think could vie for this title is Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who was imprisoned in St. Petersburg and in 1862 goes on a hunger strike. Uh, and his act is then emulated a few years later by many other um, Russian radicals in St. Petersburg prisons. Um, it's odd. I've now gone and, and read a number of the biographies of Chernyshevsky that not a lot is said about that hunger strike. Um, I think it's so early that it was kind of hard for people to figure out what it meant. Um, but his move eventually actually um, influenced uh, the emergence of the hunger strike among the suffragists in uh, England and then Irish hunger strikers during the Irish Revolution and Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to focus too much attention on the Irish case, but it seems to me one of the takeaways that I got from your book was that much of the template for what it means to be a political prisoner, both from the point of view of the state and from the point of view of the prisoners, actually develops in the Irish-English context. Am I right about that? That really this is where being a modern political prisoner kind of came to be a uh, sort of stereotype thing? Yes and no. I mean, I feel that actually uh, the three cases, which you know, I didn't realize this when I chose them, but the three cases and their, um, uh, I guess, contexts uh, really intertwine very powerfully. So you have the Russian uh, 
example, which, as I said, influences the English and then through them, the Irish, and also through them, Gandhi, because Gandhi is reading the suff- about the suffragettes and is telling his, um, telling his comrades, we need to really pay attention to them. They have prison figured out. They're incredible. Um, so you have the Russians and the Russians, you know, the, the Polish story, which I focus on quite a bit, comes out of, originally comes out of the Russian case. I mean, after the first Polish prisoners are in Russian prisons. So the Russian case, you have the Irish-English case, uh, which in a different way furnishes um, these very powerful examples. For example, the men who die hunger striking in 1917 and, uh, and 1920. Uh, and so that is enormously influential, as, of course, at the other end of the 20th century are the, uh, the 10 men who die in Long Kesh in 1981, uh, in the summer and fall of 1981. Um, but then uh, so, too, the South African case is uh, very influential for thinking about what political prisoners are. On the one end, Gandhi, who you know, is kind of an archetype for so many people. Um, and then at the other end, Mandela, who is the quintessential political prisoner, you know, on a global scale. So I didn't think of it this way, but these are originally, but these are uh, intertwined cases that that have that influence together. Yeah, they're, they're certainly covered by the world press. I, and I guess what I'm driving toward is, is there a sense in which this menu of activities in prisons, and not only activities, but that is also resistance to doing certain things like work, is it sort of cobbled together internationally over a certain period? You know, you mentioned the hunger strike very early, and it becomes one of the standard elements. Not working becomes another. It becomes more extreme in various ways. I'm thinking about, you know, not wearing clothes. Uh, various things people do with excrement, this kind of stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that sort of menu of activities developed? You know, in the case of the hunger strike, we, we do have this evidence uh, that I've mentioned of the idea kind of moving around. You've got Russian uh, radicals who show up in exile in London in the... Uh, 1870s, 80s, and 90s, and they give well-attended speeches where they tell about their travails. And, you know, that probably sort of gives the idea. And then we've got Gandhi reading about the suffragettes and uh, telling folks in Johannesburg about that. So in the case of the hunger strike, we can see that happening. Um, And I've also mentioned that people are uh, reading, you know, they're reading the Gospels, but they're also reading other accounts of political prisoners. but beyond that, no, well, I guess I should also add that there are manuals for how to be a political prisoner. Um, the first one that I'm aware of is published in Russian in 1902 in Switzerland and smuggled into the Russian Empire. Um, but then there are plenty more over the 20th century, and these things still get published. Um, but you know, beyond that, I would actually have to say that some of this is. These are things that people work out uh, individually in different places and come to the same kind of conclusions. So if you take the example of refusing to wear convict clothing and therefore choosing to go naked in the prison, uh, that's not an easy decision to make, uh, certainly. And it's one that is... uh, much more difficult in the 19th century uh, and through the early 20th century when there are so many more um, taboos about being naked and appearing naked and so on. Um, O'Donovan Rasa says that he appears without his clothes or he's forced to strip down, but I think he actually is just stripped down to his, his underwear. You know, he, uh, that would to a Victorian be equivalent uh, or that's what um, Victorian scholars have told me. Uh, but anyway, if you're thinking this through, you know, what am I going to do? They're asking me to wear convict clothing, and I'm not a convict. I'm not a criminal. I'm not like them. I will not submit to the state. Well, it's, it's a logical 
thing to say, well, then I will wear nothing. I will not put on that, that, that uniform. Um, and you might, you know, there might be variations on this in some way. Uh, you might, you know, choose to wear a towel if you have one or something, uh, or not. Um, you might be more dramatic about it or not. It might escalate as it did in, uh, in Long Cash and in other Irish prisons, uh, Northern Irish prisons to uh, refusing to, uh, slop out your, uh, your cell, you know, put your, um, uh, your chamber pot out, uh, and instead smear your excrement on the walls. Um, but the basic idea of this is what I have to do um, is something that I think um, when you're you know you have, you have pretty limited options when you're in a prison, right? If you're on the street protesting, there's lots of different things you can do in a, in some given situation, but you don't have a lot of options when you're faced with um, prison clothing. So this is a case of. Parallel evolution, you might say. Evolution might be the wrong word, but uh, similar decision-making in a similar context. Yeah, parallel discoveries. Absolutely. Yes, parallel discoveries. Yeah. Yes, I see what you mean. So uh, I'm also very interested in talking to you about how the people that were imprisoning these folks learned how to deal with them, because it seems to me they learned a lot. And actually, you talk about Guantanamo Bay at the end of the book, and it seems to me that the people that run that place really have learned a lot. <laughs> about how to deal with prisoners. So can you talk about the um, ways in which the authorities learn to treat these people in such a way as to kind of, well, see, you know, they were, again, I'm sorry to talk so much, but they, they face kind of a dilemma because on the one hand, they have to take care of them. But on the other hand, they really don't want their message getting out. You know, so how did they, yeah. So I would actually have to say that what really strikes me is how little regimes learn. The rational thing for a regime faced with opponents, uh, well, the most rational thing would be simply to tolerate their expression of their views. Um, you know, in most cases, if they're not, uh, you know, violent uh, opponents. Um, but if you if you've already taken that off the table because you're a repressive regime or they're they're what you call terrorists. Uh, you, the regime, calls terrorists, then you can get them out of the country or you could execute them. Those solve your, solve your problem. But instead, you choose to put them in prison, which uh, offers certain advantages, but definite disadvantages as well. So the advantage, and this is something I really tried to figure out, you know, why would a state imprison its, its opponents rather than, um, you know, saying, well, that's obvious because states are repressive and that's what they like to do. Um, you know, really, what, what do they gain from imprisoning their opponents? And there are a few things they gain. So they get to demonstrate that resolve every day uh, instead of, um, you know, if, if you uh, execute someone, uh, some opponent, then that's a one-off deal. You've shown your resolve one time. Um, and people will remember it, of course, but it's, it's not a continuous thing. And if you imprison someone, you get to demonstrate your resolve day after day, year after year, as long as that person is in prison. You know, this is what can happen to you. This is what will happen to you. And this is how we are able to exercise our will over someone. Um, and in addition, you get to name that person. If you execute someone, you kind of lose your opportunity to name them. They're, they can now become a martyr. Uh, you, know, you can say when you execute them, well, we've you know, rid the country of this, of this menace, but then you kind of lose the narrative, they become a martyr. Uh, but if you hold someone, you can say this person is a terrorist, that's why they're in prison, they're a criminal, uh, menace to society, or even a non-person, you know, that's, some, that's somebody who is unimportant. Uh, and that is clearly what regimes hope to be able to do by, um, you know, affirming whether it's the leaders of um, apartheid South Africa or uh, Britain during the Troubles or uh, communist Poland, what have you. They can say, you know, these are rabble-rousers, they're terrorists, they're criminals, uh, whatever, we don't have political prisoners. 
Um, so that's the advantage that imprisoning gives you. Now, here's an advantage it doesn't give you um, for the most part. Regimes do not generally seek to rehabilitate political prisoners. And that's one way in which they acknowledge that they have political prisoners because criminals, even if states aren't really trying very hard, like uh, the United States today, uh, even if they're not trying very hard to rehabilitate, that still is part of the um, is part of the message. That's why we put people in prison um, so we can uh, change them. Generally, states don't do that with political prisoners. There are some exceptions, like in the early Soviet Union, there was a lot of talk about this uh, in China to some extent. But for the most part, uh, states treat political prisoners as incorrigible. Uh, so imprisoning political prisoners does not generally offer the advantage that you can transform them into obedient citizens. Um, so what are the disadvantages? Well, the disadvantages are that you have to hold on to them. You have to uh, uh, deal with them and try to control them. And political prisoners turn out to be pretty difficult to control. Modern political prisoners uh, do. Earlier ones might just uh, complain about the, the conditions and the fact that they can't write letters or the food is bad or something like that. Um, modern political prisoners turn out to be quite unpredictable. Or as I put it in the book, um, they turn out to be very good at being illegible or incomprehensible to the regime. I guess the thing I was driving at was the various ways in which uh, the regimes actually managed to label these people. And it really is quite a variety of different ways. And you mentioned some of them. One of them, for example, in the Soviet case, they became enemies of the people. This is kind of a broad omnibus term, meaning they, they're doing things which somehow bourgeois authorities or counter-revolutionaries are, are propagating ideas and these people are their agents. Um, and it was very frequent in the Soviet case to call them foreign agents. In the case of the Nazis, though, they, they labeled them in different ways. And they would always say, at least initially in the, in the 1930s, they would say they were taking, for example, social Democrats into protective custody. I just remember this expression, protective custody, when in fact they were uh, political prisoners. And then you mentioned also the, the Chinese case, and in some cases the Soviet case, there wasn't an, an attempt to rehabilitate them, but they did force them to sign confessions before they were executed. Uh, and, and there was, you know, that this really was, they were kind of doing, I don't know if that's the most rational thing, because clearly there's lots of resistance in the liberal states to killing these people, which again brings us to the English case or the case of the UK and the Irish. Um, again, they labeled them in a different way. They said they were part of a, basically a paramilitary organization and they had the advantage of, 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 of being able to tell the truth about that because there was a paramilitary organization that was conducting a bombing campaign. So, uh, it just seems to me that like they, they did learn something about how to best spin the fact that they were keeping political prisoners. If you see what I mean? Yes, that's, that, that's very true. On the other hand, uh, prisoners turn out to be uh, quite capable of confounding expectations. Uh, and so a good example of that would, uh, would be the, uh, the prisoners in Northern Ireland during the troubles when, uh, quite uh, early on, uh, they decide that they are not going to wear, uh, as they put it, convict clothes. And you know, the first one to do this says, "If you want me to wear it, you'll have to nail it to my back." And so he refuses to wear the clothing, and pretty soon you have a large number of of men from the IRA who are um, wearing nothing, um, and. Uh, you know, that's a, that's, that led them down some difficult paths, you know, to, uh, you know, for some people to the edge of madness, probably, you know, you go uh, naked and cold and, and all of that for years on end, and it's going to be hard to hold on to your sanity. But it was also a constant uh, headache to the point of obsession for the authorities, you know, what are these men going to do next? Um, and of course, that leads to the hunger strikes, which at one level, the regime 
wins, you know, the men die, but then they're then they uh, after the hunger strike ends, they they give up their protest and uh, and start wearing clothes again. Um, but at another, uh, but in the long term, uh, the uh, I, I would have to say that the prisoners, oh boy, this is an, a complicated word to use. Um, prisoners win. That's not quite right. But the prisoners um, are uh, are successful in uh, in their in their protests over the long term because it is just a very difficult thing to manage political prisoners. Uh, uh, you know, once once you've got them behind bars. You know, as I was writing this, though, you have you know um, you have. Uh, put your finger on something that is uh, very important in the book. As I was um, writing it, I was thinking, "Wow, am I uh, uh, writing a you know a manual for for regimes on how to control political prisoners? Look here, all the devious things they do, and here are successful ways to to deal with them." And the end, I don't think that's true because they're they're really. Uh, there aren't, at least in the book, as far as I'm concerned, examples where the regime figures out how to deal with political prisoners, and that includes the case of Guantanamo. Um, Guantanamo is a is a is a brutal place, uh, and yet uh, it's clear to me that that the United States has not been successful in controlling the narrative about the prisoners in Guantanamo, and. Uh, you know, there are lots of failures that are connected with Guantanamo, but that is one of them. Another thing that occurs to me is, is isn't it important to strongly distinguish between, uh, I guess, what you might call liberal democratic states where there is the rule of law and other places? I'm thinking of communist China during Mao's period or maybe even today. I don't know. Um, Cuba, North Vietnam, Vietnam now, North Korea, Soviet Union, obviously, where essentially if you're a political prisoner, you're, you're just very likely to be shot after your show trial. Because in this case, the regime has figured out what to do with them, and that is really essentially just kill them or don't allow them to communicate with the press at all. Yes, uh, no, that that is absolutely true. And uh, I chose these cases in order to have a wide variety of regime experiences, so ranging from uh, Nazi Germany and Stalinist Poland uh, at one end of the spectrum. Not not in the same space in the spectrum. Nazi Germany would be by far the worst, and then Stalinist Poland, uh, through the relatively benign dictatorship in Poland in the uh, interwar years, uh, apartheid South Africa, um, the relatively um, lenient treatment in communist uh, Poland during the. Uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, uh, you know, when they weren't regularly executing uh, opponents. Um, uh, and at the other end, you have the, well, then you have the Russian Empire and you have the, the, the British Empire in South Africa and in Ireland. Um, and then the, uh, the democratic governments of interwar Ireland and uh, and the UK during the trouble. So really a quite wide variety. And I don't engage in explicit comparison um, because my ultimately my interest in having such a wide variety of cases is so that I can think about whether prisoners experience things radically differently uh, in uh, different kinds of regimes. And in some ways, certainly they do. You're right. You're much more isolated in, uh, say, a Nazi prison or in a Stalinist prison than you are in places where, you know, reporters can come into the prison and they can see you and interview you and maybe even photograph you. Uh, but on the other hand, we can see prisoners organizing themselves, engaging in protest, confounding the regime in unexpected ways, even in the worst prisons. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I interviewed somebody who uh, had written a biography of Hans Kohn, uh, the famous writer about nationalism, also emigrated from – he first he emigrated from uh, essentially 
Austria, well, what is the Austro-Hungarian Empire to Israel, then he immigrated to the United States. But he also did a stint in a Russian prison camp where he put out a newsletter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like a newsletter. <laughs> this was during World War One. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, you know, that's, I'm also reminded of the fact that when Lenin was sent into exile, they sent his library with him. <laughs> yes. Well, Hitler also had access to world. anything he yeah. wanted to read when he was in prison yeah, exactly. writing Mein Kampf. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was a different world. That's just bizarre to me. They sent his library with him. Yeah, and and and, and the Hitler like he had his manuensis there and wrote Mein Kampf. And it was very yeah, I don't know. Those things are just sort of comparison to what I suppose you actually experienced in a in a real gulag or in a Nazi prison camp awful. I guess one of the things I was also driving at was something a little bit more technical and medical in a way. We do a lot of people who are medical historians in here like, and that is the issue of, this is something that I've, I've never seen and I don't really understand, force feeding. Because states did learn to do that. How do you do that? Do you know anything about force feeding? I, have you ever seen it? I, I hope you haven't ever seen it done. But like, how does it work? Uh, well, no, I haven't seen it done, thank goodness, uh, or gotten close to it. And if, and if I had to uh, force feed somebody, I don't think I would uh, know, uh, how to do it. Um, so, okay. That's, that, that is a, that is definitely a point that, that, um, you know, today we live in the, um, you know, we live in the world of, uh, of ensure, um, you know, this, uh, nutrient rich goo that they feed, um, uh, hunger striking prisoners in Guantanamo. Uh, and so it is um, uh, much more possible to, uh, well, to ensure that that these people are not dying, uh, because you know, so a hunger strike is is a, is a game, right? Where uh, the hunger strikers, are, in one way, it's a game where they're saying, you know, I might die, and the regime conceivably could say, well, wow, that would be great, but they don't. Instead, they want to make sure that they stay alive, and they can do that by threatening them or uh, by force feeding them and force feeding is is uh, is a difficult thing i mean one of uh, ireland's great martyrs thomas ash died well 100 years ago last month during a botched force feeding he had only been on hunger strike a relatively short time um and you know they force fed him wrong sent you know sent the food into his lungs essentially and he died of that. And so it's, uh, you know, doubly terrible that he died, but also that they had essentially killed him. One of the things that was interesting about this in terms of learning, you know, when Ash went on his hunger strike or three years later, when Terrence McSwaney went on, on his hunger strike, uh, starting in uh, Cork and then ending in Brixton prison in England, um, people did not know how long you could hunger strike for. There was sort of an assumption that, you know, this can go about a couple of weeks. Now we know after McSwiney, but also after so many other prisoners, you know, culminating again with the 10 men, uh, including Bobby Sands in 1981, that uh, somewhere between if you're if you're drinking water at any rate, somewhere between 45 and 70 days is how long somebody uh, in, in decent health, which, of course, your average prisoner is not in. Uh, can last on a hunger strike. So prisoners didn't didn't know that uh, before McSwiney, but uh, but of course regimes didn't either. Um, and so certainly there is a, a level of learning that goes on. But there there are so many other ways. You know, if if a regime has figured out the hunger strike, there are other ways in which you can continue to uh, confound them. And I think one of the things I learned from this is that the the political prisoner will always find a way to reinforce the their politics using the materials they have at hand using the prison yeah they're they're inventive there's no question about it so I, there are a couple other questions i want to ask you before we have to let you go one is about amnesty international it seems to be very much bound up with political prisoners can you talk a little bit about the origins of amnesty international sure so um before amnesty uh international there are um a few predecessors that also try to publicize uh, political prisoners most of them are most of those earlier groups 
are only agitating on behalf of their own uh, prisoners, people who are who are like them, who are on the same side. And the classic example of this is the communist organization colloquially known as Red Help. You know, they were helping Reds and not helping all political prisoners, obviously enough. Uh, there's one other predecessor, which I think is fascinating and really understudied, and that was the International Committee for Political Prisoners, which was founded by Roger Baldwin, the founder of the ACLU, about a year after he founds the ACLU, he creates the, the International Committee for Political Prisoners as sort of the international, he thinks of it as the international counterpart to the ACLU. Uh, and like Amnesty International, he tried to think in terms of not just people on his side or people with whom he agreed, but others who are victims of oppression. Although on balance, uh, the ICPP was more in favor of those who were right-thinking, uh, who were um, socialist, social democrat, uh, etc. But they were a little bit more broad than that. But Amnesty International um, brings in a couple of innovations that are important. One is a really rigorous um, focus or, or an, an attempt to be rigorously um, ecumenical in its support so that uh, it doesn't matter what your ideas are, but that you are imprisoned for your ideas. And so, uh, especially in the early years, in the 60s and early 70s, Amnesty International would highlight three prisoners every month and they would ins- they would pick them so that one would be a prisoner in a communist country, one would be a usually a communist imprisoned by a right-wing dictatorship, and of both of those, there was you know, never any shortage. And then a third one would be a prisoner in a democratic country, usually a conscientious objector, uh, of which also in the 60s and 70s, there was no shortage. And so this was a way of saying, look, it's not about their politics or about our politics, but about the fact that they are Suffering, and so this was you know, part of the emerging international uh, discourse of human rights in the sixties uh, and seventies. The other thing they did, which was quite interesting, was uh, figuring out a way to get ordinary people involved with supporting political prisoners um, by you know, letter writing campaigns. You know, which would originate in somebody's living room. We're all going to sit down together and send postcards to a prisoner or letters of protest to the ministry of whatever in whichever country. Um, and you would adopt a prisoner and uh, and write to him uh, and his family and uh, and to the government that holds him. Um, but Amnesty has had an influence in a different way um, that. Uh, is worth remembering. And that is that they did not and have not uh, adopted a stance uh, in uh, advocacy of political prisoners. Rather, they quite consciously chose uh, to create a new term, a prisoner of conscience. And a prisoner of conscience is someone who is imprisoned for her or his ideas. And Amnesty International, from the very beginning, decided that one of its cardinal principles was that they do not advocate for the release of somebody who has either participated in or advocated violence. And that makes a lot of sense. But an example of somebody who uh, advocated violence was Nelson Mandela, who was Uh, not only the head of the African National Congress, but also the head of the armed wing of the ANC. Uh, And he refused to renounce violence throughout his imprisonment, saying that he could not do so until the regime renounced its violence. Uh, He did not carry out any bombing campaigns himself, but the ANC did. I mean, usually they were bombing 
electoral pylons and things like that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Amnesty International decided that Nelson Mandela could never be a prisoner of conscience and could not be adopted as such by the organization. They could advocate for more lenient treatment for him. And they did. They, not like they didn't talk about Mandela, but only in those terms that he is being treated harshly, which of course he was. Um, and, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a black mark on, on Amnesty International. Uh, Mandela himself forgave them uh, when he got out of prison and met with folks from Amnesty. But it is worth remembering that Amnesty International did not uh, advocate for political prisoners, but for a smaller group, um, and while uh, a smaller category within that, and while some of those cases we can agree with, we can say, well, that's that's good that they didn't advocate for the release of people whom we would call terrorists. The the case of Mandela shows that uh, you know we might not agree with their decisions uh, in all cases. So let me ask two other questions. Thank you for that. Let me ask two other questions uh, before I let you go. And both of them concern contemporary events. And so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure you can answer them. It's obviously not in your bailiwick or wheelhouse. Well, one of them is. Uh, and the first is, um, where are political prisoners today? How are they distributed around the globe? Who's keeping them? And what conditions are they in? Do you know this? I, I don't. Uh, well, I have some idea. You know, there's not a... Um uh, I've never been able to find a, uh, a kind of a census of political prisoners uh, around the world, although groups like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch uh, and a few others do uh, try to keep tabs on this. Um, but if we look around the world, we can identify several places where there are a lot of them. Uh, China would be one place. Um, although in the Chinese case, I mean, there's no question there are, there are many political prisoners. Um, but there are, China is a place where we would have to ask uh, for ourselves whether um, entrepreneurs, for example, who find themselves imprisoned, you know, uh, are political prisoners. And, you know, we say, well, a bookseller, sure, because he traffics in ideas. But, you know, there, there's a gray area there, obviously. Um, a second place that, that's really important is Turkey where thousands of people were imprisoned after the failed coup a couple of years ago, and tens of thousands actually, and thousands of them are still in prison or are getting arrested every day uh, or all the time. Um, beyond those two major cases, uh, Russia definitely has uh, a fair number of political prisoners. Iran does. Uh, a number of uh, – Egypt is, a, is another important example – uh, and other countries in the Middle East and in Africa. I think you could find political prisoners in uh, more countries than we would expect. And one of them, I don't know if you were going to ask me about this, but one of them is the case of Guantanamo. Yes, I was exactly going to come to that, and that is my question. My final. So here's the thing about here's the thing about Guantanamo. When I say that Guantanamo holds, I think the number is now 41 political prisoners. It should be clear that that is not a value statement. If they were holding 41 Adolf Hitlers, I would still say that they're holding political prisoners, right? I mean, that, that it has nothing to do with their politics. It simply has to do with the fact that uh, they have a politics. For some of them, although it's less true of the 41 who are there now, but when there were nearly 800 of them, there's no question that some of them were people who had, you know, been picked up on the battlefield, were kind of clueless, or were turned in by, um, uh, you know, a, a jealous, you know, brother-in-law or something like that to get a, get a bounty from the Americans, whatever. Uh, so some of them didn't have a politics, but they acquired a politics in prison because, the, the imprisonment there was was essentially political in the sense that the United States uh, made a great effort to uh, uh, label them as adherents of a highly political form of Islam um, and treated them as uh, not just battlefield enemies, because then they'd be prisoners of war, 
but as political enemies, as people who were, um, uh, you know, what was what was the uh, the phrase? You know, they 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 hate freedom or something like that. Hate liberty, right? Um, you know, that's a political way of framing them, and it's clear. So first of all, it's it's clear then that in a objective sense, they are political prisoners. Secondly, um, they have acted like political prisoners. And what I looked at uh, when I chose to look at Guantanamo was, you know, again, not trying to evaluate, are these the good guys or, you know, is it fair that they suffered in prison or, you know, whatever. None of those things come into play. But rather, what do their actions look like? And do they look like the actions of other political prisoners? And in every way, I find that they do. So yes, they're in that category, but no, that does not mean that uh, they should, that I would advocate that they should all be um, uh, released. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that confused lots of Americans, including me. I, I haven't really read deeply on Guantanamo or anything like this, but I don't really understand what status they have. I, I do know a little bit about military history and what it means to be a prisoner of war, and they're certainly not classified in that way because all kinds of things would be entailed by that, which are not being followed through by our government. Um, I, I don't really understand. What is their status? Marshall, this, is, this gets back to the issue of do states learn? You know, the, 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 the rational thing to do would be, would be to have left them all in Afghanistan or, or wherever, where by now most of them would be uh, dead in um, you know, some sectarian warfare or something like that. Um, but by taking them here, that was a way of demonstrating, and there's just no question if you look at the, the rhetoric of uh, the Bush administration, I mean, this is now sort of ancient history, but the rhetoric was definitely about demonstrating our resolve. And uh, you get to do that day after day by saying, look, this is where the bad guys go and we've got you. Um, even if you're you know, trying to uh, play fancy games, pretending, well, we don't actually have them because it's not actually American territory, whatever. Um, it was definitely about demonstrating our resolve. And look how it has, as, uh, it has backed us into uh, a rhetorical corner in the same way that um, Margaret Thatcher's government in Britain or the apartheid regime in South Africa and all the predecessors get backed into a corner. You uh, round up all these folks, put them in prison. You say, oh, that's great. Lock them up, throw away the key. And then you discover, damn, now we've got to deal with them. And we've got to deal with the way that they can present themselves to the world, even if they have very limited ways of presenting themselves to the world. So if the rational thing to do would be would have been to left them on the battlefield or whatever it was, why not just let them go now? Why didn't the Obama administration just let them go? Because they were radicalized? Or what, what, what's the point in, in keeping them? an honest question i really don't know that's not a rhetorical right. question i don't know why we don't just let them go <laughs> um well look there were there were so many um obstacles erected some by congress you know making it very difficult to try them and some by uh, maybe american political rhetoric generally right so what the obama administration would have liked to have done uh you know you think of obama as you know uh a uh, very you know, cool, rational lawyer and so on. I think uh, if he could have designed the perfect system, he would have got each and every one of them into the courtroom. Some of them would have been sentenced to, you know, long sentences. Some of them would have gotten short sentences and some of them would have been shown to be not guilty. And then you could move right through it. But instead, you know, that option was essentially removed. And even to this day, we've, we've really not successfully uh, dealt with uh, any of those prisoners. Um, just letting them go, uh, that wasn't really uh, a, an option given the, given the rhetoric, the very political, it has to be emphasized, rhetoric around uh, the men in Guantanamo. Right, so, right. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, after we'd said they were bad guys, we couldn't just tell American people, well, we're going to let them go. Oops, we were wrong. Exactly. Even, even if we could say, you know, you know what? They're bad guys. 
uh, we've held on to them for 12 years, let's say, or whatever the, you know, um, yeah, by the time that, that, that Obama is done, they've been in there for 14 years, uh, some of them. So conceivably, you could have said, you know what, here's the deal. They've been in there for 14 years. Uh, and these ones, even if we got them to trial, they would have been sentenced to at most 10 years. So uh, we're just going to let them go. But no, that's not realistic. Yeah, I don't know. This is just, uh, I think it does prove the main point of your book. That is that grabbing these people, political prisoners in general, and holding on to them does cause a lot of trouble for uh, particularly liberal states. I, I, won't, I won't speak for um, the Vietnamese or the North Koreans or the Cubans, but in the case of the United States, grabbing these guys was, uh, what do they say these days? It has bad optics. Isn't that what they say? Oh, hey, if look, if it were just optics, but it's yeah. also optics that cost hundreds of yeah. millions of dollars. Oh, I know. I know. And I, yeah. All of that stuff. And look, you know, uh the these other regimes, the the authoritarian regimes, uh sure in some ways they're they're better at handling this. Um you know, they, they know how to lock people away and make them kind of disappear. But not really. I would say that in the end, over the long term, with the with the possible exceptions of, of China and North Korea, regimes never are successful at solving the riddle of how to hold on to political prisoners and to make it work for your regime politics. I think you're right about that. I definitely think you're right about that, and that's a, a, that's, that's hopeful a, a sign, I think, for for all of those people that are in prison right now in those places you mentioned. Um, that one day they will be looked on very favorably by history, I think. And this includes all the political prisoners in Cuba and in China and in and in Vietnam and in other places, North Korea, where they're being held, because uh, I don't think history is on their side. And uh, I mean, I do think history is on the side of the prisoners. Right. I'm always an optimist in, in that regard. Yeah, well, I am too. I mean, I think you don't need to be too much of an optimist because you can just look at what's happened in our own lifetime, Audric. I mean, it's absolutely millions of people have been freed largely, I don't know about largely, but at least in part because of the sacrifices of those people. And also, you know, in the case of the, in, in the Irish case, you know, I lived there for a while and um, I've got to say that I was very ambivalent about it while I was there. Um, ambivalent about the way they were being treated or they had been treated and the troubles and all this other stuff. But, you know, I mean, those folks did a pretty good job of, uh, resolving that situation you got to give them credit absolutely you really absolutely and that's in part thanks to their to their prison uh experience yeah i i, I uh yeah i mean a lot of very um I, I i don't remember too much about it but a lot of very unkind things were said about some of the leaders of Sinn fein who had been in, in prison for a very long time and been treated extraordinarily har- harshly and were in fact i i don't know if they were terrorists but they were they were they were uh they had committed acts of violence but you know they turned around and they didn't do that anymore. And the same can be said of Mandela. I mean, people, you, you know, most people don't want to remember Mandela's past as essentially a, I don't know what you want to call him, but uh, he was a violent guy. <laughs> and, and, but he came through that. And, you know, there's kind of, you mentioned the Gospels again, there's a sort of redemption story here somewhere. You know what I mean? Some of the best of these people come through and they really are. Mandela is a great example of someone who came through. Well, I do have to say, I do have to say though, Marshall, that one of the things that um, came through clearly for me as I was working on this is that, you know, for every Mandela, there are also so many who are dis- who are mentally as well as, of course, physically destroyed by prison. Um, you know, so I, I think I, I probably had an idea early on when I was doing this that, you know, these are men and women of, of great um, uh, mental stability and fortitude and, you know, they're it's sort of it's sort of a prisoner of conscience kind of model. If you have a got if you've got a conscience, you know, your conscience never goes away. And so I guess that's also another legacy of amnesty. But if you look at these people, um uh and you know, still more if you if you talk to them, um, you know, you, you do meet some who who come out unscathed is the wrong term, but come out strong, but others who are just destroyed. There's no other word for That's it. That's true. And we should remember them as well. Well, uh, Patrick, we've taken up a huge amount of your time. Thank you very much. I'm, so, I'm sorry we've gone over time a little bit because this is so interesting. Let me close with our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, you know, I've uh, been interested for years and written a number of books on the fall of communism. 
uh, and on other democratic revolutions. But uh, the the kind of um, the turn away from democracy in some of these countries and the, the current political crises has led me to think about, okay, so what is what is successful in revolutionary moments? What is one of the ingredients for success? And one of the things I've thought about a lot uh, lately is that uh, allegiance to a larger organization, formal or informal, that, that helps you think about a set of values uh, and helps you keep your allegiance during, during dark times is more important than I've given credit for it in the past. And so in that context, I've decided I really want to understand more uh, one particular allegiance in the 20th century, and that is uh, the allegiance of communists. And, you know, we have a lot of histories of communism in the 20th century, but no one has tried to write a history of communists. What is it, you know, how do you be a communist? Think about yourself, think about your relationship with faraway Moscow, uh, with Marx that you're reading and all of that kind of thing. You know, if you're far away in uh, Poland or the United States or Ghana or uh, Chile, wherever, and so I'm only now start trying to sort of put together this idea. I do know that, as with uh, the book on political prisoners, with Dance and Chains, that for me it's important that it be a global history. Um, but on the other hand, it has to be one that I can complete in a reasonable period of time. And so <laughs> figuring out how to corral that, there is that. It's yeah. going to be a task. There is that. So, well, that sounds fascinating. And you're just exactly the person to do it because you have this tremendous international experience and you've written books that are on similar topics. So we look forward to seeing that again. Okay. Well, thank you. All right, absolutely. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Padraig Kenny today about his terrific book, Dance in Chains, Political Imprisonment in the Modern World. Padraig, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure, Marshall. Absolutely. And let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you for listening to the New Books Network and supporting the New Books Network. And I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>